If you have your Bibles, open up to Daniel chapter 9. And we will have a look at the 70 weeks prophecy. So, last week we learned about prayer. And we tried to understand and apply many applications for an effective prayer life. And this week, we continue the chapter in verse 20, and we were going to learn about what many consider is the most important passage on prophecy in the whole Bible, which is the 70 weeks prophecy. And why? Because it forms a big picture. So later on, I'm going to hand out a chart which covers the Babylonian Empire, the Median Persian, the Greece, the Grecian Empire, then the Roman Empire, and how it all fits together. And also, on the back of it will be how in the first 69 of the 70 weeks, it goes from the time when the command was given, I'll explain more about that later, to when Jesus came in on the donkey, it's exactly to the day fulfilled. So it's amazing, and it's all about Israel, which is why it's in Hebrew, not Aramaic, as the previous chapters were. It's just an amazing prophecy, and it gives us confidence that God really is outside of time. He really did plan all this, and Jesus is the true Messiah. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a great and awesome God. Thank you that you have everything under control, complete control. Not only do you know the future, but you also plan the future. And we just thank you that we can be so assured. Lord, it requires so little faith to believe in you because of all this mountain of evidence that we have that your word is true and that you are true. And Lord, we just thank you, Lord. Help us to put our trust in you on a daily basis, on a personal level, Lord, to live for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first and second comings of Jesus Christ are tied up with this 77's prophecy. So it's all about Jesus. Right, so let's just jump in. Uh, Verse 20 of chapter 9 in Daniel. And it says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks And sixty-two weeks the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not 
for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So, the 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy. So we go and look at verses 20 to 23 first. So Daniel's praying, he's confessing, he's asking God forgiveness. And in the middle of his prayer, he's interrupted by Gabriel. Can you imagine that? You're praying and praying and praying and an angel suddenly interrupts you. How you going, Daniel? I want to just let you know. I want to give you some understanding. So now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So it's interesting. God gave Daniel the answer to his prayer before Daniel had finished praying. Okay. Now what does Matthew 6, 8 say? It says, Your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Now, whenever there seems to be a delay in answer to prayer, there's a good reason, because God's timing is always best. But when it is right to do it, God can answer prayer immediately. And even before we finish praying, or even before we pray at all. So consider the following verse, Isaiah 65, verse 24. It says, It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. Isn't that amazing? So that's the relationship that God wants to have with us, and that's what it will be like in the Millennial Kingdom. But for now, that does happen sometimes. And I can think of some answers to prayer where you pray for something and you get the answer to prayer, but you realize that for that to have happened, something must have happened before. Uh, Verse 21. Being caused to fly swiftly. Well, do we know that angels fly? Yes, we do. Angels do fly, because it says so right here. And reached me about the time of the evening offering. Now, this is a little bit strange. Why is it referring to the time of day as being the time of the evening offering? There haven't been any sacrifices at the temple for 50 years since the temple was destroyed in 586 BC. So why refer to the evening sacrifice now? Well, when Daniel was a young teenager, before he'd been taken into exile, he had seen the smoke rise from the temple in the afternoon. And what did that remind Daniel of? Well, what was the whole sacrificial system about? It's a reminder that God accepts a sinful people on the basis of a sacrifice offered on their behalf. Daniel's been praying for mercy. So when does God show up? At the time of mercy, when his mercy was being pictured by sacrificing a burnt offering of a lamb on the altar. 
Now, the sacrifice usually began about 3 p.m., and you would sacrifice a perfect lamb as a whole burnt offering. And it typifies the future sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. Now, do you remember what time Jesus died? 3 p.m., okay, same time. It's the same time as when the Passover lambs are sacrificed. Now, along with the sacrifice, it was customary to pray at this time. This was also the time of prayer. So God is encouraging Daniel in his prayer life to keep on praying. And also, as I said before, to remind him of the mercies of God as Daniel was praying for God's mercy for the nation. And verse 22, And he informed me and talked to me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. So, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Did Daniel ever ask for understanding in his prayer, in this particular prayer in chapter 9? No. He didn't ask for understanding. So why did God give Daniel understanding? Well, his prayer, I believe, demonstrated that his heart was close to God's heart. So as a friend, God revealed many things to Daniel. Now I've got a few verses to put up here. And uh, this should really motivate us to draw near to the Lord. Because when we draw near to Him, we have deeper relationship with Him. So the first one is Psalm 25 verse 14 from the Amplified Bible. It says, The secret of the sweet, satisfying companionship of the Lord have they who fear, revere, and worship Him. And He will show them His covenant and reveal to them its deep inner meaning. So I'll read that again. The secret of the sweet, satisfying companionship of the Lord have they who fear, revere, and worship him. And he will show them his covenant and reveal to them its deep inner meaning. Now another verse is John fifteen fifteen. Jesus says to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. And finally, John 7.17 from the Amplified, it says, If any man desires to do his will, God's pleasure, he will know, have the needed illumination to recognize and can tell for himself whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking from myself and of my own accord and on my own authority. So, as we draw near to the Lord, we will have this greater understanding of what's true and what's false and of deeper things, okay? Deeper understanding of the scriptures. God wants to reveal things to us, but we have to spend time in his presence. It's about relationship. So what's happening here is Daniel studied the passage in Jeremiah, but he still didn't understand much. And in this case, his understanding came through prayer. Yes, he did need to read the Bible, but he also needed to pray in order to be in that spot, in that place where God could speak to his heart and reveal the meaning of what he was reading. So here's a phrase, you've probably heard this before, study the Bible prayerfully and pray according to Scripture. 
study the Bible prayerfully and pray according to Scripture. It's true. Spurgeon, I think, has a great quote concerning this. It says, All students of the Word will tell you that when the hammers of learning and biblical criticism have failed to break open a flinty text, a difficult-to-understand text, oftentimes prayer has done it, and nuggets of gold have been found concealed therein. To every student of the Word of God who would become a well-instructed scribe, we would say, with all the means which you employ, with all your searchings of the commentaries, with all your diggings into the original, with all your researches among learned scholars, include a lot of fervent prayer. So basically, the secret to really digging deep into the Word of God is to dig deep into your relationship with God. As you seek to know God, and you read and study the Scriptures with your motive being to deepen or grow your relationship with God, then God will reveal many things to you. It's not a case of either or, you pray or you study. It's a case of both and. We still need to study commentaries, cross-reference with other scriptures, dig into the original languages and talk things over with other Christians, you know, iron sharpens iron. But along with all those things, we need to spend time in prayer. We need to spend time in God's presence, just allowing Him to speak to us. And to emphasize this, Remember that the Bible is a spiritual book which cannot be understood by unbelievers or, I would say, a carnal Christian. Have a look at these verses in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 14-16. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual or saved judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the person who's not a Christian, they don't have Jesus living inside them, the Holy Spirit living inside them. Therefore, they cannot understand spiritual things. They are spiritually blind. Now, who's our teacher? It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus said so in John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, if we're going to be a good student, what do we need to do? We need to go to school, right? If you don't go to school, you don't learn. So in the same way, if we don't spend time in the presence of God, the teacher, the Holy Spirit, our instructor, our counsellor, he won't be able to instruct us. He won't be able to counsel us because we're just not spending time with him. Now, it says he will teach you how many things? Yeah, so it's not talking about maths and science and all that kind of stuff. He's talking about all spiritual matters that pertain to life and godliness. So, it's important to remember that outside of a relationship with Christ, we have no ability to understand the scriptures beyond a purely intellectual understanding. So, for example, there are some atheists who know a lot about the Bible, but they have missed the point. It's all about relationship with Jesus. It's all about the relationship which is perfect, then it was broken, then it's put back together because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, it's interesting that many interpretations of prophecy omit Christ. 
they don't put the focus on Christ. They put it on something else, some kind of historical event, but not on Jesus. And I consider this strange when you consider that the Bible is all about Jesus. Most prophecies point to Jesus. So the point I'm trying to make here, the application for us, is that the depth of our understanding of spiritual things is directly proportional to the depth of our relationship with God or how much we abide in Christ the vine. And I know for myself it's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that all we need to do to study the Bible is study it like a person studies biology or chemistry. Just open the commentaries, you know, look up the original language, okay, write some notes, you know, break it down into its parts. But it doesn't work that way. There are people who diligently study the scriptures, but they are carnal or fleshly, not really abiding in Christ. They know a lot, but they don't understand a lot. And this leads to zeal without knowledge or understanding, true spiritual understanding. In other words, they have missed the point. Well, I can miss the point. Now, Paul said this about the Jews in Romans 10 verse 2. So these Jewish leaders knew more about the Old Testament scriptures than most people today even, yet their lack of spiritual insight led them to persecute those who were abiding in Christ, the Christians, those who love Christ. And I believe the same is happening today, and it's a sign of the end times. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 9, talking about the signs of the last days. And he says, I'm not going to read the whole lot, but just to mention a couple of points. He says that many will act religious or have a form or appearance of godliness, but will deny or reject the power that could make them godly. He says to stay away from this kind of person because they will resist the truth. So saved or unsaved, those who seek only an intellectual understanding of the scriptures will fall short of true understanding, the understanding the Spirit gives, and will end up being ineffective in, or even hostile to, the body of Christ. They will cause problems and divisions because of their pride. Now, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 1-3. Now, the particular issue here that they're talking about is food sacrificed to idols, but you can put any issue into this box, okay, into this verse. It doesn't matter what the issue is. If you seek to find out the answers on an intellectual level, we'll find out what's going to happen, okay? So it's 1 Corinthians 8, 1-3. Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, Yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue, but while knowledge makes us feel important, we become puffed up and proud, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much, but the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So he says, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, we puffed up and proud, it is love that strengthens the church. And I'm going to read that same verse, just verse 2 this time, from the Amplified Version. It expands it and makes it clearer. If anyone imagines that he has come to know and understand much of divine things without love, he does not yet perceive and recognize and understand as strongly and clearly, nor has he become as intimately acquainted with anything as he ought 
or as is necessary. Isn't that a strong verse? I'll read it again. If anyone imagines that he has come to know and understand much of divine things without love, he does not perceive and recognize and understand as strongly and clearly, nor has he become as intimately acquainted with anything as he ought or as is necessary. So again, the issues are different in today's church as they were back then. We're not talking about meat offered to idols, but the principle is the same. Knowledge without love is a weapon. Knowledge without love is a weapon. It causes division, disruption, discord, and discouragement in the body of Christ, both within individual churches and between churches. So, application, let's examine our hearts and see if we are like the church in Ephesus, doing everything right and knowing all the right things, but having lost our first love. We're just going through the motions and it's so easy to fall into this trap jesus warned us in the last days the love of many would grow cold so how do we know if we're growing cold well if your prayer life is feeble if you have lost your desire to read the bible simply because you want to read it to interact with god if you have lost your desire to fellowship with other believers in prayer If that's true of you, if that's true of me, then we need to get on our knees and repent. I'm just going to read those verses from Revelation. I know all things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at the first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me, repent, and do the works you did at first. Now I use the New Living Translation there because it clearly shows a correlation between our love or lack of it for God and our love or lack of it toward our fellow believers. That's my prayer that the Lord gives us insight and understanding so we can know the condition of our own hearts. As a Christian, it's so easy to fall into complacency, to lose our first love and just go through the motions. As Jesus said, again, in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. If you're going through the motions, repent. What does 1 Corinthians 13 repeatedly say? If I have not love, I am nothing. Everything is in vain. Any sacrifice, any learning, it's in vain if it's not with love. Okay, If I have not love, if it's not done for Christ, by Christ, in Christ. Now, verse 23, For you are greatly beloved. Wow. Both Daniel and the Apostle John were noted for their love relationship with God. And guess what? Both Daniel and John were also noted, or we see in their lives, that they receive amazing prophetic messages. So the picture is pretty clear to me. The closer we get to the Lord, the more God will reveal to our hearts about himself. Not just facts and figures and understanding about stuff, but who he is. 
That's what I really believe. Um, Guzik says, Daniel illustrated the principle that when we seek God diligently, we often receive even more than we ask for. Daniel had just considered a set of sevens upon the nation of Israel, the 70 years of promised captivity prophesied by Jeremiah. It was as if God said through Gabriel, now I will show you some sevens that will really amaze you. So, let's get into those 77s that are really going to amaze us. Verse 24. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. So let's just start at verse 24. 70 weeks are determined. Now, there's almost universal agreement among Bible scholars and commentators, etc., that this refers to 70 sets of seven years, or 70 weeks of years. Okay. Now, the Hebrew word for weeks here, the 70 weeks, is not the word week, as in we use the word week, meaning seven days, but it just refers to a unit of seven. So it could be seven days, it could be seven weeks, it could be seven months, or it could be seven years. The context tells us what it is. In this case, the context is very clear that it's years. And it's the only way it really makes sense. Now, it says, it's for your people and for your holy city. So this prophecy, who is it focusing on? The Jews. Daniel is a Jew. He's from the nation of Israel. And what is the holy city? Jerusalem. So this is all about the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. So unlike the prophecies of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2, 7 and 8, which were primarily related to the Gentiles, like the Babylonian kingdom, the Medan Persian kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, and the Roman Empire, this is specific concerning the people and God's program for the people of Israel. So the church has no direct connection to the city of Jerusalem. And the church has no direct connection to the promises given to Israel regarding their restoration and repossession of the land. Beware of replacement theology, which says that the church has replaced Israel. Some people say that we are the new Israel. The church is the new Israel because Israel was so disobedient that God had to give up on them and he used us now instead. No. I'm going to read a couple of verses to you, and you can make up your own mind. So, first, God gives the promise of the promised land, the land of Canaan, to Abraham. And he says in Genesis 13, 15, For all the land which you see I will give to you and your descendants. For how long? Forever. And notice it says your descendants. I am not a physical descendant of Abraham. It's the Jews that are going to receive the land. And guess what? They're already there. But the hearts have not been opened yet. Now here's another awesome verse, which should put the nail in the coffin for those who want to say that the church is Israel. It's Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 35 to 37. It says, It is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day and the moon and stars to light the night and who stirs the sea into roaring waves, 
His name is the Lord of heaven's armies or hosts. And this is what he says. I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. This is what the Lord says. Just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider casting them away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. So, God made an unconditional promise to Abraham, and it says here, I will not consider casting them away for the evil they have done. It doesn't matter how much bad they've done, how much they've rebelled. God's promise is not predicated on their obedience. It's an unconditional promise, and it doesn't matter what they do. God is going to keep his promise. Now, if you're wondering, oh, it's just a once-off. Actually, it's not. There's plenty. But I'll read you one more. It's Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 25 to 26. It says, But this is what the Lord says. I would no more reject my people than I would change my laws that govern night and day, earth and sky. I will never abandon the descendants of Jacob or David my servant or change the plan that David's descendants will rule the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, I will restore them to their land and have mercy on them. Does anyone still have any doubt that God still loves the nation of Israel and he's still using them? Who will in the future? These are the two of the many scriptures that should convince you that the evil doctrine of replacement theology, where people believe that God is through with the nation of Israel and that the church is now Israel, is wrong. If you're still not convinced, just go to the Middle East and look what is going on. God is looking after Israel, protecting them, providing for them. Many, many miracles. Despite their disobedience, they are still not obedient. They are a wicked nation. But God is blessing them anyway, just like we read his promise there. Now, what's going to be accomplished in these 70 weeks, this 490 years? 70 times 7 is 490. So we're just going to run through the six things that are going to happen, that are going to be completed or done. The first one is to finish the transgression. So this says that the transgression itself will be finished. So taken literally, this means establishing an entirely new order on earth with an end to Israel's and therefore also the rest of humanity's rebellion against God. Now the only way this can happen is if God sets up his kingdom on earth. And we believe that will happen as the millennial reign where God, Jesus, comes back and reigns for a thousand years after the seven-year tribulation period. The second one there is to make an end of sins. So taking these words at face value, this means not only the end of the guilt of sin, but also an end of sin itself. It means to seal up or restrain sins. Again, this looks to a new redeemed world. Now the next one is very important. It says to make reconciliation for iniquity. So the key word here is reconciliation. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he reconciled us to God, it says in Corinthians. I think it's 1 Corinthians 5.21. 1 
We are his ambassadors. Our message is that God is reconciling the world to himself. So man's iniquity must be reconciled to God's justice and holiness. This work was clearly accomplished at the cross, where Jesus dying on the cross was the payment in full for the sins of the whole world, which includes me and you. Now, what did God say to Abraham in Genesis three different times? He said, And in your seed, capital S, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, while the basic provision for reconciliation was made at the cross, the actual application of it for the Jews, for the nation of Israel, has not yet come to pass. That reconciliation has not yet happened for the nation of Israel. So we're still waiting for that to happen. It's only when Israel finally says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord that Jesus returns to earth. So at the moment, Israel as a nation is still rejecting their Messiah. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke thirteen thirty-four to 35. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me till the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they rejected their Messiah. Jesus was instead revealed to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are being used. It's the church age now. But the church age will finish at the rapture and then God will deal with the Jews, the nation of Israel. And just before Jesus comes back, this is what they will be saying. They will be accepting their Messiah. Now the next phrase there is to bring in everlasting righteousness. So when Jesus died on the cross it, and a person accepts that gift of forgiveness, they are made righteous. But we're talking about the nation of Israel here not in an individual sense where we're talking about justification. God is going to make the nation of Israel righteous. How do I know that? Well, the Bible says so. Let's read it. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So when is the nation of Israel going to become righteous? When Jesus is reigning. Absolutely. So again, taking the statement at face value, this means a new world order of society. It's when Jesus is reigning and not a human government. And you can also see Isaiah 11, 2-5 and Jeremiah 33, 15-18. But for the sake of time, you won't read them now. Now, the next one is to seal up vision and prophecy. Now, this speaks of both the ending and the fulfillment of all prophecy. So this includes both the first 
and the second comings of Christ. So this is why this 70-week prophecy is so important, because it includes all, not specifically all prophecy, but first coming of Christ, second coming of Christ. Most of it fits into this period of 490 years somewhere. So it concludes the final stage of human history and culminates with the reign of the Son of God on earth for a thousand years, followed by eternity, the new heavens and new earth. So this is often called the consummation. Now, do you remember the seven seas of history? Little memory quiz for you. The first sea is creation. Good. Second sea is corruption. The third sea is catastrophe. The fourth sea is confusion. The fifth sea is Christ. The sixth sea is the cross. And finally, the seventh is consummation, which is the second coming. So, creation, God made the world in seven days. Corruption, there was sin come into the world. Adam and Eve sinned. Catastrophe is the flood. Confusion is the Tower of Babel. God spread out the people because he confused their languages. Christ is when Christ was born and came to live among us. The cross is when he died and rose again. And then the consummation is the second coming of Christ. So that's what this is all about. So to anoint the most holy. Now, you might think that's talking about a person, but most people, commentators, they say its literal meaning is referring to a place, not a person. So what is the most holy? It's the temple. It's the holy of holies in the temple. It's going to be anointed and blessed. And there will be a new temple in the millennial kingdom. Now, verse 25. How are these 70 weeks going to be broken up? They're not all going to go in a linear fashion from the start to the end and that's it. Okay, There's going to be breaks. There's going to be different segments within this period of 70 weeks. So the first thing we need to know is when do the 70 weeks start? Well, Gabriel says it's when the command is given to rebuild and restore Jerusalem or to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, there's other decrees like with Cyrus and Darius and one by Artaxerxes in Ezra which talk about rebuilding the temple, but that's not rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem. The one that talks about specifically restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem is in Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 to 8. And Artaxerxes made a decree giving Nehemiah permission, safe passage, and supplies to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and the walls in 445 BC. And you read that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. So that's the only decree that actually specifically talks about rebuilding Jerusalem and the walls. The rest of them are only talking about the temple. So that's the one we're going to focus on. Now, it says, Until Messiah the Prince, the Prince meaning a ruler, not like the son of a king, but a ruler, a strong ruler, until Messiah, the coming king, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So what's seven plus 62? Can you do that? 69. Fantastic. Okay. 69 times seven is 483 years. So it's 
69 units of seven years would pass from the time of the command recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 8 until the appearance of Messiah the Prince. Now, there is strong evidence that the 483 years were completed at the triumphal entry of Jesus, the start of the Passover week. And we're going to go through the calculations that Sir Robert Anderson has done for us. Really, really interesting. I've got it all written down on a piece of paper, but I'm not going to give it to you now because I know you read it and not listen. So we're going to see this incredible fulfillment of prophecy. A Gentile king made a decree, and 483 years later, to the day, Jesus presented himself as the Messiah, the Prince, to Israel. So, again, a reminder, we're not talking about princes in the one down from a king. In Hebrew, in the culture, the prince has the idea of a strong, mighty ruler, not the son of a king and heir to the throne. So, when did Jesus present himself as his mighty ruler, as a king? Only once. Zechariah 9.9 says, This will give you a hint when he did it, right? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, your prince, is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. So, on that day, Jesus deliberately arranged the event to present himself as the Messiah. And you read that in Mark 11, 1 to 10. On that day, it's the only day that Jesus welcomed praise publicly instead of quieting it. And you can look at Luke 19, 38 to 40, and Luke 5, 14, and 8, 56. And on that day, Jesus made special reference to the importance of that day. And you read that in Luke 19, 41 to 42. So this day, Palm Sunday, is the day that we think is the fulfillment of this prophecy. So I'm going to put this on the screen so you can read it with me. I'm going to go through it, do all the maths with you, a bit of a maths lesson here. So it's called The 70 Weeks of Daniel as Understood by Sir Robert Anderson. It says, Daniel 9, 24-25 says that from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, there will be 483 years. So how do we get that? Well, 7 plus 62 weeks is 69 groups of 7 years. 7 times 69 is 483 years. Anderson understood a prophetic year as 360 days. That's in the Old Testament, a year is 360 days. And that's based on both ancient history and on Revelation 11.2, 13.5, 11.3 and 12.6, which indicate that 42 months, 3.5 years are equal to 1,260 days. So in the Bible, a year is always 360 days when it comes to prophecy. Now, Artaxerxes started his reign in 465 BC. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given on the first day of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Now, in our calendar system, the Julian calendar, that date is March 14, 445 BC. And you can reference Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Now, that's the start. Where's the finish point? Well, Jesus started his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius, Caesar Tiberius, 
and you can see that in Luke chapter 3 verse 1. Tiberius started his reign in AD 14, so Jesus' ministry started in AD 29, 15 years later. Anderson believed that Jesus celebrated four Passovers during his ministry, one in each of AD 29, 30, 31, and his final Passover when he was killed in AD 32. With the help of lunar charts, we can calculate the exact date of ancient Passovers, so it is possible to calculate the exact day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as April 6, AD 32. From 445 BC to AD 32, there are 476 years on the Julian calendar, and it's not 477 because there's no zero year. So 476 years times 365 days, because we're using the Julian calendar here, is 173,740 days. Now, you adjust for the difference between March 14th and April 6th, and that's 24 days. You add the leap years for the period of 476 years, and that's 116 days. So the total number of days from March 14, 445 BC, to April 6, AD 32, is 173,740 plus 24 plus 116, which equals 173,880 days. And guess what? 483 years times 360 days is 173,880 days. So, to the very day. Jesus said to the Jews of his day, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Luke 19.42 And David said of this day in Psalm 18.24, This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So that is specifically referring to the triumphal entry when Jesus comes in. Now, this prophecy is so specifically and accurately fulfilled that it's been a significant testimony to many people. And I have a quote. Others of the Jewish scholars, by the evidence of these words, have been compelled to confess that Messiah is already come and that he was Jesus whom their forefathers crucified. Isn't that powerful? So the Jews look at this and some of them when they have the spiritual understanding, when they're willing to humble themselves, when the Spirit works in their heart, they realize, oh, God told us when the Messiah was coming, and they accept him. And just last week, I was talking to, with Marissa, two Jewish ladies who were staying at our place, that Yeshua is the Messiah who was cut off for the sins of the world, and used this prophecy just to help to explain that the Bible said when the Messiah would come. And I've also got another chart which comes from Always Be Ready. That's one word, so www.alwaysbeready.com. And they have a lot of good resources which takes you through the, the prophecies in Daniel. So the next phrase there, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So, this indicates that the rebuilding of the streets and wall of Jerusalem will happen in the first seven weeks mentioned and that there would be hard times during this time. And there were. If you read the book of Nehemiah, it was difficult. The people were suffering. 
It was a hard job to rebuild those walls and the city. And then following that period of seven weeks or 49 years, there's going to be another period of 62 weeks of seven years until the coming of the Messiah. So just to sum this up, this 70 weeks, how is it broken down? Well, the 70 weeks are divided into three parts. The first seven sevens or the first seven groups of seven years, 49 years, the city and its walls are rebuilt. In the first 69 sevens or weeks, that's 483 years, that's the time until Messiah comes. And there's one more week left. One more week left. And that is the 70th week. And this is where it gets really exciting. So what happens after the first 69 weeks? Now we're going to read what happens is verse 26. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. And that's execution. He's dead. And Gabriel is specific. He says Messiah will be cut off for the sake of others, not for himself. If you read Isaiah 53, guess what it says? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. He was cut off, but not for himself. Now, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So after the Messiah was cut off, Jerusalem and her temple would be destroyed again by an overwhelming army. That's what it means by with a flood. And just about everyone understands that this was fulfilled when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. So there's no real question about that. Now it says, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy. So the destroying army is made up of the people of the prince who is to come, the future prince, the future ruler, the Antichrist. And he's described more in verse 27, so let's have a look. What's he going to do? Well, now we're talking about the events of the 70th week. We've talked about what happens in between, this end of the 69 and the start of the 70th. Now we're talking about what happens, what's the start of the 70th week. It says, he shall confirm our covenant. Now, the he goes back to the prince who is to come from the previous verse, the prince of the people who destroyed Jerusalem. Well, who destroyed Jerusalem? It was the Romans. So, the Antichrist is going to come from the Roman Empire. And Daniel 7 tells us that the final world government is an heir to the Roman Empire as well. They come from the Roman Empire too, the Ten Toes. Or the Ten Horns. Now, it says, He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So, who's the many? It's Israel. Okay. It's for the final unit of seven years. And this completes the 70 weeks prophesied for the Jewish people and Jerusalem. So, with this covenant, Israel will embrace the Antichrist as a political Messiah, if not the literal Messiah. And is this predicted in the Bible? Did Jesus say anything about this? Yes, he did. He said in John 5.43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. So they rejected the, the true Messiah. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, John 5.43 tells us that they will receive someone who comes in his own name. Talking about the Antichrist. I believe. So, 
Taking the description of what would be accomplished in the 70 weeks from Daniel 9.24, we know that the 70 weeks are not yet complete. Yet the events promised in the first 69 weeks are fulfilled. So like Messiah being cut off, the temple being destroyed, Jerusalem being destroyed, stuff like that. So basically what it shows is that there's a lengthy or long pause in the 70 weeks between the 69th week or period of seven years and the 70th week or period of seven years. And the 70th week will begin when the coming prince shall confirm a covenant with the Jewish people. Now, these gaps or pauses in prophecy may seem strange, but they are actually common. And I'm just going to show you one example. It's Zechariah 9 verse 9, which we've read before today. And that refers to Jesus' first coming. But you know what? In the same paragraph, it goes straight on to the second coming. So here we go. I've drawn a line between where it stops talking about the first coming and where it starts talking about the second coming. Now, can you see an explanation of, oh, now we're talking about a different time period? (laughs) No, there's no difference. So I'll read it to you. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. That's why Jesus came the first time. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's fulfilled. It's done. And then it goes on. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's talking about the second coming, when Jesus comes back. So in two verses, it skips from the first coming to the second coming. And there's this massive gap in time between the fulfillment of that verse 9 and verse 10. So we can think of it this way. God appointed 490 years of special focus on Israel in his redemptive plan. Now these years were paused by Israel's rejection of Jesus. And now there is no special focus on Israel right now in God's redemptive plan because this is the time of the church. God's focus will return to Israel when the church is taken away at the rapture. And the last seven years of man's rule on this earth will begin sometime soon after the rapture. Now, it says here, I think it's verse 24. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So this coming prince, this ruler, this antichrist, will break the covenant he made with Israel in the middle of the seven years. The final week, the final period of seven years. Now the book of Revelation sees a seven-year period in both halves as yet future. And there's lots of references to that. The middle of the week and the end of sacrifice had not yet happened as of AD 90. That's when Revelation was written. And it can't have happened since because there's no temple. Therefore, it's still future. The temple was destroyed in AD 70, about 20, 25 years before John wrote the book of Revelation. So this can only happen once the temple has been rebuilt, which will occur during the Great Tribulation as a result of this seven-year treaty. Does that make sense? So this can't happen unless there's a temple. The temple was already destroyed when Revelation was written. Now, one of the last phrases there, on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. So the ending of sacrifice will come with abominations, followed 
by tremendous desolation or destruction. So abominations is the Hebrew word shikwats, if I'm saying it right. And that's connected to idolatry, severe idolatry. And there's lots of references to that. Like Deuteronomy 29.17, 1 Kings 11.5-7, and 2 Kings 23.13. So the idea is that the coming prince breaks the covenant and brings an end to sacrifice and offering by desecrating the holy place of the temple with idolatry. He sets an idol up in there, sacrifices a pig. Now Jesus called this the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24.15. And he said, indicating that it would be a pivotal sign in the Great Tribulation. And Paul also refers to this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-4. It says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say. For that day, the second coming of Christ, will not come until there is a great rebellion against God, and the man of lawlessness, the man of perdition, the Antichrist, is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Obviously, this has not happened yet. Therefore, the day of the Lord has not happened yet. Jesus has not come back. So the people back then, in this particular situation, some were saying, oh, the rapture's already happened, or Jesus has already come back. You've missed it. No, you haven't. It's still future. So, He'll even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. The Antichrist. So until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So this breaking of the covenant and abomination of desolation has a promised consummation or finish or ending. Before the 70th week is completed, each of the things described in Daniel 9.24, those six things, will be accomplished and everlasting righteousness will reign. So application for us today. How good is it for us to know with certainty that our God is the true God? You know, there's so much confusion out there in the world. Who is the true God? What is the truth? Well, we know for certain. What we've learned today and what we've learned in the past just should solidify in your heart that we know the truth. And now with that knowledge comes the certainty that our sins have been forgiven and that we are loved beyond compare because of what God has done for us and the love he has shown for us already, and we will therefore spend eternity with God in heaven. So the 70-week prophecy, along with over 300 other prophecies, which prove beyond a doubt that Jesus really is the Messiah, that will take away the sins of the world. So those prophecies prove that Jesus is the true Messiah. So I'd like us to read this together. It's Hebrews six seventeen to 20. And it's talking about God's promises and his oath and the things that cannot change and our great confidence. You ready? So Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 to 20. God also bound himself with an oath 
so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Father, I thank you for your great mercy which you've shown us. I thank you for the love which you poured out on us. I thank you for the confidence that we can have in your word because you have so clearly and accurately shown that you are in control. You know the future. You plan the future. Father, we love you. Father, help us to abide in the vine. Lord, this should push us to seek you, to know you more. Daniel was a man who loved you. You are greatly beloved, Gabriel said to Daniel. Well, so are we. We are greatly beloved too. Lord, help, me, help us to respond to your love. Help us to make the time to push all those other things away that keep us so busy, that stop us from spending time with you. Help us to get rid of those things and to make time for you. Lord, to be fervent in prayer, to be having a great desire to read your word. Increase our desire for prayer in your word and for prayer with other believers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.